Thank you, Patrick. Well, the uh, arrival of, of little Ruby Abinghouse um, a little earlier than was at first planned has meant that there's been a little bit of a rejigging of who's preaching what on this series of Psalms, uh, and I have a little unexpectedly found myself having to deal with Psalms 123 and 124. Uh, but I was telling Christoph it's actually all very providential because he now gets one of the ones that I was going to be preaching on, which is 128. And if you read that psalm, you'll see that's the one about the man whose wife is like a fruitful vine and whose children are like olive shoots around the table. So uh, I think it's been much more appropriate that he got that one. We've been doing this series on the Psalms of Ascent, which are pilgrim psalms. They were psalms that the people of Israel prayed and sang together as they journeyed to worship towards Jerusalem uh, for the feasts. Uh, and in the first evening that the Christoph looked at this, he, he reminded us that it's maybe a cultural thing that we're not desperately easily able to tune into because we can't think of an equivalent. Uh, and he talked about football songs and things like that where maybe we do still sing on the hoof, as it were. Uh, and, and that's true to an extent that it is difficult to get into the culture of these psalms uh, and their first setting. Uh, and we certainly don't know the tunes that they would have been singing uh, in those days to, to these psalms. But as I thought a little bit more about them, I realized that within our history, within the uh, deep tradition uh, that this church has grown out of, uh, the old Presbyterian tradition, uh, in fact, the, the old Covenanter tradition in Scotland, uh, there would have been occasions when, at, because of times of historical persecution, these psalms, which of course were all that the Covenanters sang in those days, these psalms would have been sung in the open air. They may well even have been sung on the move. And we don't know all the tunes that they would have sung, but some have been preserved for us. Uh, and we know that because the, the old tunes have the name of the psalm that they were written for, um, uh, appropriated to them. So the most famous one, of course, is the Old Hundred. Da, 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 da. All people that on earth do dwell. Old Hundred because it was written for the Hundredth Psalm. And that, and that has been put into the doxology and lots of other hymns ever since. And one of the other ones that has come down to us from that deep history is actually called the Old 124th because it was written for a version of this psalm or one of the psalms that we're looking at this evening. So I decided that we would be very brave this evening and in an attempt to think ourselves in to what this psalm is about, that we would attempt to be like those covenanting forebears and sing together. And it's okay because they, they, they often sing sitting down, so we'll sing sitting down. Um, that old one, two, four tune to a version of this psalm. And we'll do it without music because they would have done it without music. And we'll see how it goes. So, Paul, if you would put up uh, the words... This is a version of Psalm 124. You can follow how it, it keeps close to the uh, original of the, the, the Psalter. 
Uh, and some of you who grew up in this tradition will know this tune, but many of you won't, so we're going to do it together just at the start this evening. The first line will go like this. What if the Lord had not been on our side? So let's sing that together. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Second line a little bit higher. Save in God's people, what would we have done? So sing that together. Save in God's people, what would we have done? Let's take it from the top. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Save in God's people, what would we have done? Next line starts a little bit lower. What if he had not helped, we had not won? When with our foes we battled hard and long. Okay, let's try that. What if he had not helped? What if he had not helped, we had not won? When with our foes we battled hard and long. Last line. When their great anger toward us burned so strong. So try it from the top. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Save in God's people, what would we have done? What if he had not helped, we had not won? When with our foes we battled hard and long, when their great anger toward us burned so strong. And just because you don't get into it, we'll try the second verse. Then certainly we would have been consumed, devoured by those who thirsted for our blood, swept clean away like debris in the flood. psalm and a tune written very much with the words of that psalm uh, in mind. These psalms, because they were to be sung on the hoof, uh, were very memorable. That's why they're a section of short psalms. And if you look at, at 123 and 124, 
you will see that one of the sort of eight memoirs uh, is just this repetition that has been preserved in the English translation here. You look at 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. And then the repetition of eyes in verse 2. The repetition of mercy, linking verses 2 and 3, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. The repetition of endured in verses 3 and 4. The repetition of contempt and pride and arrogant. Very simple. Only a couple of ideas there, just able to be memorized by the people as they walked, as they focused on where they were going as they concentrated on their journey to Jerusalem. Psalm 123 and 124, if they are linked in any way, because they're very contrasting, one is a corporate lament, 123, a lament for what God's people have suffered. Psalm 124 is much more triumphant. It's a, it's a psalm of victory. But if there is a link, I would suggest it is this. It's the link of posture posture. Psalm 123 teaches us the posture that we are to adopt before God, which of course is one of humility and willing service. Psalm 124, on the other hand, tells us the posture that God has chosen to adopt towards us, that of help, our helper. And in Psalm 123. The first half of that psalm, and it's really only in, in two main verses, the, fir- the first half, the first verse of that psalm has a dominant image of slavery. And it is trying to enforce into our minds this idea that we cannot stand over God We can't even sidle up alongside him. That the proper posture is one typified as a a maid looks to her mistress, as a slave looks to their master. Very often when I'm, I'm talking to folks, when I'm debating, and even when I'm looking at my own life, and I'm thinking of the times that that I choose to to live a different way, when I go my own way, when I sin, when I'm talking to folks who are resentful of God or are anti-Christian in some way and they're giving out about God or about uh, Christianity or whatever, the common denominator I find there in my own life and in the the words of those who are arguing against Christianity… I have gradually come to understand that the common denominator there is again one of posture, a desire to be above God, a desire to tell God how we think He should be, a desire to tell God how if if we were running the world, this is how we would do it. And whether it be a philosophical discussion about the problem of evil, whether it be a theological discussion about the nature of God, whether it be a lifestyle issue about whether I feel like I should be able to do this or shouldn't be able to do this, the common denominator is really a question of whether or not we are prepared to be subservient. Yes, I, 
in very, I guess, countercultural language for today, whether or not we are prepared to be enslaved by God. And the interesting thing is that Psalm 123 is a psalm of lament because God's people are persecuted. They are under the cross. We don't know the source of this until the very last word or two of the, of, of the psalm. But we just know that they, are, that, they, that they have endured much. And yet in spite of that, the posture they assume is one of servanthood. It's interesting, the uh, psalms of, of ascent are not all uh, psalms of triumph like 124 or psalms of 122 that began as we saw last week. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. The psalms of ascent remind us also that life is messy and painful. That, that when we come together to worship, we do so in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of opposition. The Psalms do not forget the bad times. Someone once said to me when they were going through a particularly difficult time, they said, you know, I find that you really do have to be in a happy mood to go to church. But it's not all sweetness and light. It's not all hymns of victory and, and triumph. There needs to be a place to incorporate into our worship and into our coming to worship, our journeying to worship, this sort of lament. To realize that in the midst of worship, we have tragedy. Something that I'm sure churches all over the country experience from time to time in their fellowship. People grieving, people struggling. Think of our neighboring church that we will be joining with shortly, Stormont, this week, burying one of their youth leaders tragically killed in a, a motorbike accident. These psalms reorient us towards God for times like that. Slavery may have been more or less eradicated in the West. We may have all but eradicated a servant class, but we know what it is when someone is a slave or someone is a servant. And the reality is, of course, as this psalm brings out, that we are all enslaved to something. We may not be economically enslaved. We may not be politically enslaved. We, we, we may uh, not have our freedom or our rights taken away and anything like that. But theologically, we are enslaved. We are either enslaved to God or are we, ens we are enslaved to our own sinful natures. We are enslaved to our contemporary consumerist culture. We are enslaved to our endless desire for uh, self-stimulation and entertainment and uh, material wealth. Whatever it happens to be, we find ourselves in this world enslaved to something. And the question is, where will our eyes turn when we find ourselves in trouble? What is our natural reaction when, like the people of Israel, we find ourselves the object of ridicule or contempt. I don't know about you, but I really do have within me a very strong inbuilt sense of self-justification or vindication. 
I don't like to be misunderstood or misquoted or, uh, or, or ridiculed unless I have a chance to tell them exactly what I think. But this psalm doesn't ask for self-justification. This psalm doesn't ask for clever words with which they can answer back the ridicule of the proud or the contempt of the arrogant. This psalm simply asks for God's mercy. The word translated mercy, Hanan, in the Hebrew here is the same word that is carried into the New Testament in, in, the, in, in the word grace. All we can ask for is for God's grace. And it takes grace to deal with persecuting ridicule and contempt. And to be able to take it for the sake of God and to make Him the focus, not ourselves. The source of this contempt is, of course, the arrogant, the proud, literally those who set themselves up. It's the contrast to the slave, the two big contrasts in this psalm. The godly people who have the posture of a slave before God, and the arrogant, those who set themselves up to oppress others. There's a couple of New Testament commentaries on this psalm, this short psalm. One of them is Romans chapter 12. And it's interesting there even how, how that chapter starts, where, where Paul asks the, the church in Rome, he says, in view of God's mercy, chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's Hanan, God's grace, God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. What could be more servile than that? What could more encapsulate the, the life of a slave than offering their bodies as living sacrifices? This, says Paul, is your spiritual act of worship. It's a commentary, if you like, on Psalm 1, 2, 3. But because God is a God of mercy, we can offer ourselves utterly and wholly and totally over to Him. And that is the worship that He desires. Not the feasts that these guys are traveling to. Not the religious ritual of the various festivals. But the living sacrifice of the worshiper. The other New Testament passage that I think comments on this is 1 Peter 2 where Peter says uh, to, 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 the, to the church, uh, once uh, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. He's saying, you don't belong here. You will be ridiculed. You will have contempt. Christ said to his disciples, it will be like that because it was like that for the master. But let us remember, though once we had not received mercy, now as God's people, we have received mercy. Folks, there are not just New Testament commentaries on this psalm. There are real-life testimonies to this psalm. In different parts of the world today, we have 
folks giving their lives for Christ. Earlier this year, three Christians were brutally murdered in southeastern Turkey when five attackers entered the Zerva Christian publishing house in the town of Malatya. They bound three men to chairs, blindfolded them, and slit their throats. The three Christians were Ugar Yuxel, who was engaged to be married, Tilman Geske, and Nakate Aydin, who leave wives and children. All three attended a local 30-member Kertulis Protestant church pastored by one of the men. Five people have been charged with the murder. The alleged ringleader had visited the publishing house on several occasions expressing an interest in the Christian faith and even attended an Easter dinner. Nakati's widow, Shemza, spoke about her feelings in a televised interview. I'm not angry and I don't hate those who did this, but I want justice to be done. I forgive them, but I know I can only do this with the Spirit of God. Why did those three men and their families choose to live and die like that? It was because they had chosen to be enslaved and be enslaved to a loving God. A God who gives us something worth living for and something worth dying for. Rather than be enslaved to the type of all-consuming hatred and treachery that led to their deaths. There is a, a hymn in our uh, Presbyterian hymn book. Uh, maybe you would uh, like to, to look it up. It's number 563. And just read some of the sentiments that are there with this psalm in mind. 563. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer or be. And then in uh, uh, the, the final verse, My will is not my own until to you it's given. It must its earthly crown resign if it would reach to heaven. It's full of, of contrasts that we are only free paradoxically when we are enslaved to Christ. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. So what are we enslaved? I think so many of us, if you're anything like me, so many of us are still enslaved to some of the ambitions and hopes of this earthly life. We need to adopt the psalmist posture of a slave to the hand of its master, the, the eyes of a maid to the hand of their mistress, and turn and run to God for mercy. It's that posture of humility that helps to make the link between the, the, the lament of 123 and the triumph of 124. It's quite obvious that Psalm 124 is a very different sort of psalm. It's triumphal. 
It's even perhaps, some would think, triumphalistic. As I said, the uh, key here is the posture that God has chosen to adopt to us. It's got that little repeat at the start where the, the leader would have called out the first line and then let Israel say, and everybody would have come in behind. They were all invited to this corporate confession, reciting God's redeeming acts, taking joy of how He has led them through hazards and difficulties. And there's the same repetition that we saw in 123 uh, going through the whole psalm. When we read the beginning of Psalm 124, I'm sure there are some questions, or there should be some questions that arise in our minds. How right is it for us to say, the Lord is on our side? There are two difficulties with that. One is that over the centuries, too many people have claimed that for themselves without warrant. And particularly too many nations have claimed that for themselves to justify war. Bob Dylan was probably the one who put it most articulately. Oh, the history books tell it. They tell it so well. The cavalry's charged and the Indians fell. The cavalry's charged and the Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. Oh, the First World War, boys, it closed out its fate. The reason for fighting, I never got straight. But I learned to accept it, accept it with pride, because you don't count the dead when God's on your side. I've learned to hate Russians all through my whole life. If another war starts, it's them we must fight. To hate them and fear them, to run and to hide, and accept it all bravely with God on my side. The other difficulty with this psalm is that people might look at it personally and say, well, you can say God is on your side, but what I'm going through at the moment makes it quite clear that God is most definitely not on my side. Pastoral difficulties that make us think, well, on what grounds do we say that, that, that God is on our side? The one of the key ways in which I think we might be able to uh, help uh, in, in this, uh, these help, help ourselves in these difficulties is to understand that the phrase on our side is simply the prepositional phrase in the Hebrew, for us. God was for us. And the tone of the whole psalm is of a God who had the interests of his people at heart, who was always for them. Not for them and against other people, but for them and only against those who were against him. So it wasn't a case of taking sides in war. It was a case of being able to preserve his people through the type of persecution that Psalm 123 ended with. It's a confession that the Lord will not abandon His people. He is for them. The pastoral issue, of course, then looms large. What happens when it seems that God has left us? 
Let me read a a short passage from uh, Eugene Peterson on this. He says this, Through the weeks I get case histories of family tragedy, career disappointments, pessimistic recounts of world events. And people say, how do you explain that if you say God's on my side? I suddenly am put in the spot of being God's defender. I'm expected to explain God to his disappointed clients. I'm thrust into the role of a clerk in the complaints department of humanity, asked to trace down bad service, listen sympathetically to aggrieved patrons, try to put right any mistakes that I can, and apologize for the rudeness of the management. But if I accept any of those assignments, I misunderstand my proper work because God doesn't need me to defend him. He doesn't need me for his press secretary. Peterson goes on to explain, I think quite rightly, that Psalm 124 is a psalm of witness. Again, it simply bears testimony to the fact that throughout history, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of bereavement, in the midst of ugly, chaotic death, people have been able to say, the Lord is for us. It is witness. I was speaking to someone recently at, at an event that, that I had organized for those in ministry, and it was to do with issues of, of professional stress and all of that sort of thing. And they said that the thing that they liked about the chap who was facilitating this, he says that when they've gone in the past, and this would apply right across the board in other areas of life too, when they went in the past to these seminars or whatever, they tended to focus on the problems. List all the things that are stressing you out and we'll try to knock them off one by one. He said the difference with this guy who was facilitating for them last week was that he concentrated on them, on what it was doing to them. And what these events, these external pressures and tensions and struggles were doing to their character. And he got them to work on their relationship with God and the development of their Christian character. Psalmist who wrote wrote 124 would agree. He would say that the key is not to look at the flood, at, at at the snare, at the dragon's mouth, that is implied at the start of verse 3 in the image of being swallowed alive, the image of the ancient dragon. Not to concentrate on that, but to concentrate on their refuge in God, on who they were in God. I find this often in pastoral work. There are some people just utterly amazing. I've been met with people who can who can hardly feed themselves or dress themselves or greatly incapacitated and just radiate the joy of the Lord and will say, I have so much to thank God for. It just moves your heart. And I've come across other people who can't get beyond their own private difficulties. Christoph, I think last week, talked about how instead of feeling our way into a different way of thinking, which would be to say, in this case, I feel bad. God doesn't care. God is not all-powerful. God is not all-loving. Rather, we need, as Christoph said last week, to think our way into a different way of feeling. We start from the premise that God cares. 
that God is the one who is the helper. And we start to feel in the midst of all the, the floods and the monsters and the dragons and the snares and the traps. We start to feel that love. I asked under Psalm 123, where do we naturally look whenever trouble comes? Do we try to justify ourselves or do we just ask God for mercy? Similar to here, where do we, where, where do we look? What is our natural tendency when we're met with these difficulties that are symbolized by the flood and those who are trying to trap us? Some will run to the medic or the psychologist. The Christian will dig deep into the trouble until they find God. In verse 7, the image simply intensifies to, I think, one that we can all identify with, that of being trapped. The image is of this little bird, probably a little quail, running along the ground, and they had set a ground trap or a snare for it. It's caught. It can't move. And I'm sure we've all been in situations where we have feel, felt trapped in a situation, maybe trapped in a relationship or trapped in a job or, or, or trapped in, uh, in an endless cycle of pessimism and unable to see the light. The triumph of this psalm is that the snare has been broken, that there has been escape. It's not easy, folks, being a Christian. The pilgrim life shouts that at us. These psalms, as we follow them through their journey, shout at us, it's not easy. But Psalm 124 has an important link. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 6, and you see it in verse 8. The Lord is the start of the psalm. The Lord is the end of the psalm. And the Lord is the link between the two halves of the psalm at verse 6. He is our help. That is His posture towards us. He is the one in whom we hope. Eugene Peterson again. Every day I put hope on the line. I don't know one thing about the future. I don't know what the next hour will hold. There may be sickness. There may be personal or world catastrophe. Before this day is over, I may have to deal with death, pain, loss, rejection. I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know what the future holds for those whom I love, for my nation, for the world. But in spite of my ignorance, and surrounded on one hand by tinny optimists and on the other by cowardly pessimists, I say, that God will accomplish His will. And cheerfully I persist in living in the hope that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. Samus said, Blessed be the Lord who has literally, who has not given us to be the prey for their teeth. Or as Matt Redman says in his modern song, Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all that it should be, blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. There's also a New Testament commentary on this psalm. 
that phrase, who is the Lord, verse 6, the Lord has not made us pray to their teeth, is the very phrase that is used to describe what Paul did to the early Christians. It said he started destroying, literally tearing apart like a wild beast would tear apart its prey. He started tearing apart the church of God. And yet in the next chapter, the helper of Psalm 124 comes in, and he's for his people. And instead of destroying Paul, he saves him in his grace and makes him an instrument of his glory. The writer to the Hebrew says this, how can we escape if we neglect the great salvation that Christ has won for us? The psalmist says, the snare has been broken. We have escaped like a bird out of the snare. That is the image. New Testament terms, folks, that is the image of what Christ has done for us. It's as if we are in the trap and the door has suddenly been flung open and we are free to leave. The trouble is that many choose to stay in the trap. They prefer to remain enslaved to something else. The real life commentary on this psalm is probably best in the words of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where in the final verse, he simply says, so let them take our lives, goods, husbands, children, wives. And he says that that will, that will win them nothing for our fortress is in God. I don't know how any of us could sing those words or sing them carelessly. Let them take our lives, goods, husbands, children, wives. But someone who has lived a life of faith and knows where their home is will be able to sing it because they know that nothing needs to stand in the way of those whose hope, whose help is in the name of the Lord. If the Lord had not been for us, literally, lo imanu, it's a variation of the phrase Emmanuel. God is with us. Supremely fulfilled at Bethlehem. The Lord has been for us. On our side, with our interests at heart, Emmanuel. God with us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord, we thank and praise you for all that you are and all that you have done. We pray for those of us who still are struggling with the very real sense that, that you may be absent. We ask that in the days to come, as we dig into that trouble, that we would find you in all of your mystery and glory. And for any this evening, Lord, for whom the trap has been sprung, the door has been opened, and they have not yet taken advantage of that freedom, we pray that this evening they would. They would escape just like that bird and learn 
that only as your captives are they totally free. In Jesus' name, amen.